Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In this episode, we'll talk to Zena Hitz about how we can cultivate the habits and discipline required for a life of learning, especially in our age of distraction. And we'll ask if such a life is really worth it. I think virtually any intellectual activity, any piece of thinking or contemplation involves others. Even just sitting reading a book, there's an author that wrote that book. And there are characters within the book that the author is sharing with you, even if they're long dead. You, you see something about who they were and what they saw. So, so there's, a, there's a human connection at the bottom of it. Zena Hitz is a humanities scholar and author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. And she joins our podcast to argue that few experiences are as formative and fulfilling as the cultivation of a rich inner life of learning and contemplation. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from September of 2022. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. Our topic today, cultivating a life of learning, is one near to the heart of those of us at the Trinity Forum. But we also know it's not one without detractors, those who believe that the humanities, a life of contemplation, is ethereal, perhaps even elitist or self-indulgent. It's also one that has spilled over into increasing controversy around the humanities itself. In an overloaded utilitarian society, interest in support for the humanities has declined steadily in favor of focusing on the applied sciences and technology such that the humanities are now themselves often defended with the argument about the ways in which they can provide strategic ad advantages and real world skills, whether by sharpening our critical thinking capacities or equipping us for leadership or citizenship or developing talents for innovation and design. But as our guest today will point out, while the advantages and instrumental goods of learning and the humanities are real and significant, they are not the only or even the main reason to cultivate a life of learning. Instead, she'll argue, learning is worth doing for its own sake as something intrinsically valuable, reflective of and fortifying to our dignity as human beings and a vital part of the good life. Drawing on her own experience as a scholar and tutor to both university students and prisoners, she'll provide an inspiring and intriguing summons to consider anew what it means to engage in contemplation, think deeply, and cultivate an inner life. And the ways that doing so, while often difficult, will offer the rewards of living more wisely and well. And so it's a real pleasure to get to introduce our guest today, Dr. Zena Hitz. Zena is a tutor or professor of the humanities at St. John's College at Annapolis, the recipient of the Hyatt Prize in the humanities in 2020, and the president and one of the founders of the Catherine Project, which builds learning communities around reading and reflection. She is also the author of the beautiful work, Lost in Thought, 
the hidden pleasures of the intellectual life, which has received critical acclaim, been translated into multiple languages, and which we've invited her here today to discuss. Zena, welcome. Thanks so much for your kind words, Shree. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. So Lost in Thought is, it's a wonderful defense of the value of the humanities and learning, as well as a memoir of sorts and mentions the ways that you had in some ways like a dual conversion, both vocationally and a religious conversion. And so I'd love to hear from you both what led you to write this book and what impact those dual conversions had on your own thinking and in cultivating your own life of learning. Right, so the, there's, a, there's always a different way of telling the story of how the book came to be. I mean, you know, it was one thing after another, and then you just did what was next in a certain way. <laughs> I think, practically speaking, I had, I had had a religious conversion after finishing my PhD, my first year of teaching. I had gone through some years of struggle and existential crisis and trying to figure out what it meant to be an academic. And, to, and a person of faith and what it meant to be an intellectual and a person of faith and how how one could use one's mind without being bogged down in intellectual vices. I'm an extremely competitive person, very argumentative, confrontational, any of my colleagues will tell you. And I, I like to win. I like to be the smartest. And that's part of what brought me into academia. But in an, and of course, in another way, I was once a child who loved books and was fascinated by animals. And, and even as a liberal arts student at St. John's, I was an undergraduate where I teach, just reading books that seemed to really matter for how one lived. So I had, I think, very, I was very lucky to have some kind of core in the background that I could try to reach towards. So anyway, here I was in this mess of being a, a philosophy professor, new convert, and not quite knowing what to do with myself. And the, the tension became so bad, I, I finally just, I left, I joined a religious community in, in rural Ontario, Madonna House Apostolate for three years. And I, I, I discerned out and decided to come back to St. John's where I was an undergraduate. So it was in that moment of returning to teaching after this time of crisis and a sense of renewed purpose, returning to teaching, returning to teaching in the liberal arts context, giving up research academia more or less permanently, and and thinking also about what what what's happened to the university in in over the course of my life because I've been away for a few years, so you start to see things, you see changes more dramatically when you've when you've been out of step for some time. And um, it was obvious that the, my friends who worked at institutions were facing problems that they of a kind they hadn't had before. Uh, and I, I started reading this literature and, and no one said anything I could relate to. That was really the golden age of the argument that, you know, oh, philosophy really sharpens your mind so that you can go to Silicon Valley and, you know, really design some apps and climb the corporate ladder and, you know, make a ton of money. And, and it didn't, that didn't make any sense to me. That wasn't, it didn't seem honest. It didn't seem why any of us professional philosophers had gotten into philosophy to begin with. So I said, what would it be like to try to write down what, what actually seems to matter to me and the people I know about it? Mm 
Uh, I wrote a little essay for First Things Online, and that was picked up by a philosophy blog, and then an editor from the press reached out to me. And so there was a book. And at the time, I always say this because I never know who's out there, who's in this situation. At the time when I was writing and through the whole time I was writing the book, I felt like I was the only person in the world who thought of learning this way because the environment of utilitarian justifications for the humanities was so pervasive and so strong and no one wrote this way. I didn't feel. And one of the things that's wonderful about the book coming out is that now suddenly I I hear from people all over the world who care this, who think this way, who are writing in this way, who are working, who are building institutions, who are so it's it's a bigger world out there than any of us know. And sometimes you have to write something to find out. As we start out, it's always helpful to kind of like define terms. You know, most people watching are not going to be professional academics or scholars, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a very thoughtful audience too. And so when we talk about cultivation of the inner life and contemplation, what do you mean by that? And how does one do it? So when I began writing, I, I used the term intellectual life which is a bit of a mouthful and my publisher hated it. So I mean, it ended up in the title, but it, it was downplayed from where I wanted. And, and at other times I talked about, I found that the love of learning for its own sake, mm -hmm. the life of the mind, these are all common phrases one can kind of use to try to latch onto the activity. Mm -hmm. And part of the difficulty in defining it is that it's really quite broad. It's commonly seen in reading or studying but also in studying nature, studying botany or birds or, or molecular physics or what have you. So in a way, my argument is I'm interested in much more than just the humanities, even though I'm a humanities person. I'm also interested in this human desire to, to understand the world of mathematics, the world of nature. And I, I think the nice thing about the word contemplation is that it it can be even broader than that. It, it can really capture a lot of the moments of our lives that we think are most precious, most valuable, in which we think our lives really culminate. So you can contemplate a mathematical theorem, you can contemplate a story, you know, a novel, a Bible story, something like that. You can, you can contemplate God in prayer. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, one of my favorite examples, you, you know, you, you're spending time with your family in pure leisure. It's it's nothing. There's no agenda, and you're you're just being together. And part of that value of being together, I think, is something contemplative. You're knowing and savoring what's good about these relationships with these human beings in your life. So it's in that way. If you take contemplation, it's very general, but it it also. The parts of it I'm most interested in are these parts which are more strictly intellectual. So reading, studying, pondering mathematical theorems, looking at birds, things like that. You know, in reading your book, it struck me that there was a little bit of a paradox in that, you know, as you were just talking about so much of cultivating an intellectual life is seemingly solitary or at least interior, you know, contemplation, reflection, which is usually done you know, by oneself, or you know, as you even talk about hidden learning, you know, that which is sort of shielded from, you know, from public view. And yet there also seems to be a fairly intensely relational component you know, to learning broadly, but a lot of the learning or the teaching that you have done you know, at St. John's, you're called a tutor, not you know, a professor, but there's been many ways there where you have acted almost as a 
a midwife to learning, you know, whether it's through students or or the prisoners that you you tutored and, and the like. And I'd love for you to reflect a little bit on that paradox. Like how is inner learning achieved or nurtured? Is it is it personal? Is it relational? Is it both? What's the what's the relationship there? Yeah, that's a great question. And and something which I again, every time I try to formulate it, I come up cross some slightly different aspect that I decide to emphasize. I wanted at first to emphasize the solitariness of intellectual life and, and the inwardness of it. Because in so many of the stories and examples, including my own life as a child bookworm, you know, with always a stack of books, or a prisoner in a cell is a very good example, right? This is person is isolated, they're away from their family, they're away from their community. What do they have? Well, they have this realm of learning that's available to them. They have this this realm that's inside one's mind and one's heart. And that's what one can cultivate when really there's nothing else. It's what you have when there's nothing else. And so for me, that was very helpful for two reasons. For one thing, to tell these stories about how thinking and studying in the inner life has really been a refuge for people in extreme circumstances, political prisoners, other kinds of prisoners, people under totalitarian regimes, and also in more garden variety ways, people who are confined to the home, people who are who are who suffer from an illness of one kind or another, who are or who are for arbitrary reasons kept out of social life. So I, I wanted that to be there. And I also think that for me, being this, having been this research academic, which is a, a very much a, the world in the sense of John's gospel, you know, it's the realm of competition and status and making a mark in the world. And it was obvious to me that part of the way to thread the needle of the intellectual life and the life of faith is to keep to pull oneself away as one much as one can to detach from matters of status or competition and to instead find one's own questions and it also happens with students students very anxious about talking in class they're obsessed with grades and performance and the pressure has to always be no just find what the question that's really driving you and share that with others even if it's difficult then you'll start really enjoying what's going on and being alive in the classroom. And then, of course, you also do well, as it turns out. So I wanted to start there. I'm sorry, I'm taking a little longer to answer this question I might have intended. But then I also, it's also true that I think virtually any intellectual activity, any piece of thinking or contemplation involves others. Even just sitting reading a book, there's an author that wrote that book. And there are characters within the book that the author is sharing with you. And a lot of what I think we do in you know, great books education, like the one I teach in, is you encounter the minds of these authors. And you, even if they're long dead, you, you see something about who they were and what they saw. So, so there's, a, there's a human connection at the bottom of it. And then, of course, that's only amplified and made richer in a conversation with others about that book where you know you you see one piece and someone else sees another piece and someone else sees another piece and someone else sees another piece and you you collaboratively work together to understand something 
And so you, you make possible a way, a mode of communion of real human connection, which is on, not on the basis of, you know, you and I were better than that, those people, or you and I were the best we've made it to the top of the heap, but rather of, of, of friendship based on something, some shared good that, that you're working at together, which is the best kind of connection, I think. You know, I, I was actually really fascinated by that. The possibilities for new kinds of relationship and communion that it seemed like you were suggesting that that mutual learning opens up. A and the contrast you made between the way of being in the world that we normally think about, social life, competitive life, trying to get the advantage. You, know, you mentioned that you know, politics itself is essentially based on distinctions, divisions, you know, conflict, you know, that's a necessary part of it. And I, this may be a leading question, but I wondered about your thoughts about looking at our currently hyper-divided, hyper-polarized, and lonely society. What role the cultivation of a life of learning might have in terms of, you know, meeting some of the deepest needs for, for relationship and friendship. So of course this is dear to my heart and I, I, I do very much feel that connecting on the deepest level is in the realm of learning is one wonderful way to get past our current divisions. And I see examples of it in my classrooms, we, we get a lot of different kinds of students from mixed political backgrounds, mixed religious backgrounds, all of the political battles in the United States, they're, they're being fought in the in the dorm hallways at St. John's. Uh, and, and it can affect the classroom for the for the negative or the community on campus for the negative if it, if it comes to the surface. But what I've seen time and time again is that when you get to the fundamental questions, the human questions, then everyone finds a way to connect. And they may not become friends permanently. You know, these are you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds and, and actually even the grownups maybe even have more trouble making friends again. But that that connection, it's it's very profound. So I, I see it in my teaching every day. I see it in, you know, the this this work I do for for the Catherine Project, it's a nonprofit where you know, people, people who are very isolated can find some community. I do think it's more general though. I, and I do want to say that, that we lack not just opportunities to learn together, but opportunities to do all kinds of wholesome, good things together. Like, you know, we, we need our gardening clubs and we need our, our real life playgrounds with real children playing together, not just the virtual, whatever it is. We need real terms of of collaboration and and shared interest, we need to find those. And I I do think that that it's an antidote both to the loneliness and to that that intense polarization and hostility that seems so common right now. Yeah. So one question I think people might be having as we talk about sort of contemplation of of so many things and wrestling with the big questions is usually that does not happen quickly. This takes time. And and one thing very few of us have is time or extra time, leisure time. So I guess one question to you is how much time does it take to cultivate an inner life? And how do you carve out time to do so? Yeah, it's it's this is a hilarious question because of course I I I, I can never find the time. I, I have no inner life. I just I just talk about it in public. <laughs> but, um, I I was very inspired when I was preparing this book 
there's a couple of old books from early 20th century, just kind of the, you know, when people are really adjusting to the industrialized world and the crush of the work week, and also trying to recover some humanity from it. So it's past, you know, what you're getting past the worst abuses of the child labor and the 20 hour day and and you're getting into a place where you're working a lot, but you have a little bit of space and how do you use it? And the, those, there's two authors that they both argued about two hours a day or maybe a little less, maybe two hours for some days a week and then 30 minutes, 40 minutes at other times. So to carve out some kind of routine where you're, where you're revisiting the same thing every day. And I'm, I'm guessing some of your audience has have prayer lives that are something like that. You know, you have to do it every day. You, 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 sometimes it's a longer time, sometimes it's a shorter time, but you, you know the discipline of checking in every day or an exercise routine, I mean, to be more, even more banal than that. So it's a bit like that. And I, I honestly think the most important thing, even more important than time is community. You need to have someone to do it with. Usually you need someone to help you study and this is why one of the reasons why I set up the Catherine Project in order to allow people in who have who work and who have complicated lives, who have five small kids at home, to to get some support, the support they need to to use the time that they have when they have it mm-hmm. for this kind of study. But I I think it's very daunting, and I think I, I talk to a lot of people who get discouraged because they they can't focus on it. They can't discipline their minds and they think it's something wrong with them. And it's almost always lack of community. And, you know, and you can see it at a place like St. John's where it's such a rarefied environment that our students read much more than they should be able to read given their age and their background. But they can do it because they have each other. And and some version of that I think is really necessary. Yeah. You know, the, the question of community also raises, you know, we're, we're all creatures with mixed motives. We often don't even know our, our own hearts at time, as Augustine talked about. How do we sort of distinguish between the love of learning versus perhaps, say, the love of status or, or prestige or even, you know, joining a particular community that we sort of admire? Or And is it necessary to distinguish it? Or do we just say, well, you know, we are fallen creatures with mixed motives and we'll just do the right thing regardless if there's some dross in there with the gold. So I think my my answer is going to be closest to something like the last thing you said, but I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm following Augustine here as, as well as I think Plato and Aristotle, the philosophical forebears, where we all have mixed motives. What matters is not some kind of imaginary purity where we have only one motive we're aware of, but the, the question is, what is what's winning? What's 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 really driving you? Is it the ambition or is it the love of learning? And that can be very hard to tell in a given moment. And I don't I think being overly scrupulous about, you know, why are you joining this reading group? You know, is it to is it to impress others or is, is it really to learn? I wouldn't worry too much about that, but you do want to be aware of moments when there's a crux it's like the you know the the fancy professor who happens to be in your reading group isn't there one night and you're like oh what's the point of doing this they can't even hear my smart thoughts you know that's a moment where you say oh wait a second why am i doing this 
or it conflicts with some other some other need or desire that one has. So those are the moments. The moments of conflict are the moments where your your motives can be clarified and you can make a readjustment. But I I, I think that a mixture of vanity and the desire to impress people and the desire to win an argument and to be the smartest person in the room that's that's always going to be you know in the mix and the the really important thing is to be just constantly putting oneself under pressure to for something more than that for something that's deeper and more profound than that and and another actually excellent way of doing that is to push yourself to learn things that are uncomfortable for you that are not so uncomfortable that you can't stand it, but just a little bit of a stretch, always be stretching yourself. And then that humility is also going to help you to keep your motives in the right order. If, if you're struggling, if you're like me and, you know, I, in St. John's, I end up teaching historical texts and math and science a lot, which is not my main skill. And I'm always put on my back feet because I, I can never seem like the smartest person in the room because it's, it's just not quite my real house, but I always learn a ton. And it keeps me in a better, I think, in a better shape than I would be otherwise. So, you know, I also have to ask, you know, previously we hosted Jonathan Haidt uh, on this series. Mm -hmm. And not only Haidt, but, you know, a much earlier David Hume Mm -hmm. make in some ways a similar argument that so much of what we think of as thinking is actually fairly motivated reasoning. It's more akin to marshalling arguments for something we've already decided, rarely on on the basis of reason. And so would like to kind of hear from you how you distinguish between essentially motivated, indulging or ruminating in motivated reasoning and actual thinking or reflection. So, you know, it's funny. I don't think there's any quick rules. It's it's a real, it takes time to cultivate awareness of motivated reason of others. It's always a bit easier in others. You can practice on others and, and then just see it in yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, one sign is that the conclusion stays the same, but the reason changes. That's a sign that something is up that's not quite right. But you can also, you know, there's a kind of classic you know, qui bono, you know, why is this person saying that? Who benefits from saying that? And I think we all do this in a way automatically. If it's something that's costly for someone to say, if they're making themselves vulnerable by saying it, Mm -hmm. they're paying a price for saying it. And likewise, if it's ourselves, if it's painful for us to say it, if, if it's frightening, if we feel that we're stretching, that's a sign that that we're, we're, we're working against some motive and for something that's different. It's not, you know, these things aren't cut and dried, but it's a sign. So it's one of the reasons why in the book I talk so much about suffering and pain is that I think that those are in the intellectual life in, as in other regions, there's signs that, that something good is happening, Mm -hmm. that, that we're, 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 we're growing in a particular direction. Again, that needs qualifications, limitations. It's not that pain is always good, but it can be a sign of real thinking, real learning. And, and we, can, we can kind of try to make ourselves more sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. I need to ask, I think most of us probably want to love a life of learning and maybe do so very much in the abstract. And yet at the end of the day, are often exhausted, tired, vegging out just sounds so appealing. 
And I'd love to hear from you how one cultivates or regains, you know, a love of learning that might have shrunk just with toils, cares, pressures, lack of time, and, and what you do in your own life to, to cultivate that love. Well, what I think has always helped, not always, but has helped me as an adult is experience knowing that, so for instance, if, if I sit down to write something, an essay or a book or an article or what have you, I spin my wheels for days, weeks, sometimes a full month. I just, I can't focus on it. I can't get my head into it. And then suddenly I'm in it and I can think through it and the things start moving and the whole thing is, is underway. So, so perseverance, and again, community is important for that enough at the beginning so that you have enough experiences of knowing that it will start working and how wonderful it is when it does and then to that just keep returning to that same thing and and again something like a daily attention to it is usually helpful Mm -hmm. Uh, and just build that sense of the pleasure of doing it and and knowing that it's not going to be automatic I mean, people talk this way. I'm, I'm about the least athletic person in the world. People talk this way about running. They say, oh, when, when you start running, it's so painful. And then you reach this moment where it's just, it's like freedom. Now I've never gotten to that point in my whole life, but I, I believe that that's what the, the, I have experienced something like that in intellectual things. So I, I think really, but again, community is, is crucial. So, you know, if you don't have someone in your own community or in your own family, I would encourage you to to take a look at, at Catherine Project or one of the other. There's tons of online, wonderful online resources now for people who are trying to find communities of learning. And I, I think actually Jessica Hooten Wilson also hosts a site where they're where they're all put together. So I would just really encourage people to to reach out and find others to learn with and, and just to trust that it's all going to be you can do it. It's a human thing and it, it just takes struggle and perseverance. And, and, and the more you do it, the easier it gets. That's great. But finally, as promised, Zena, I want to give you the last word. Don't be afraid to learn. Never be afraid to learn and to think. That's my last word. That may be one of the most succinct last <laughs> words <laughs> I've ever had. Pretty <laughs> forum conversations. <laughs> Zena, it's been a real pleasure to get to talk with you. Same here, Sherry. Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to all of you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.